You're listening to the Green Majority Radio Program. Thank you so much for downloading our podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's show. We talk a little bit about Standing Rock, a little bit about some news items, and then how this relates to public policy. We're going to be doing a show about where we, uh, essentially where we propose an entire political platform. We discuss some of those ideas and more on this week's show. If you enjoy this program, and more importantly, you would like to help it grow and become a better show, produce more podcasts, and just generally be more impactful, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, we hope you'll consider being five, ten, or fifteen dollar member. But if you wanted to see your name pop up there and let people let us know that you're supporting us, you can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash green majority. We hope you'll consider signing up today. Enjoy the show. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. It is Friday. Well, at least it is in Toronto if you're listening live here in a local station. If not, you're uh, it's not Friday. <laughs> and you're listening on one of our wonderful and extremely appreciated uh, community radio partners, uh, perhaps on one of our partner uh, platforms. Uh, who knows where it could be? I often find us, uh, when I, I, I Google the show, Steph, and I find us in all sorts of weird places. <laughs> uh, and that's great. Please share the show. We love it. Uh, I'm going to uh, pass on right now. So basically, I've got some news stories this week um, that I'm going to tie to a future show. Uh, so I'm sort of interviewing myself is how I put it in the middle section, but with a couple of news stories that I think directly relate to a few policy issues that I would like to talk about. Uh, I'm going to sort of do that in the middle of the program. Uh, we're going to play it by ear, uh, what's going to happen later in the program. we got lots of news, so we're not short on content. Uh, but there's four of us here. Uh, three of us, I think, are half awake, including myself. So Jeff's here to support as well, our, our, our art and culture correspondent. Uh, Jeff Thank Donner you for is having here. me. Uh, he's going to be jumping in throughout and reminding us to uh, uh, to uh, be mindful of a few local things, including some upcoming festivals, mm -hmm. uh, and just generally comment on stories. Uh, Sabina is also here. is going to be jumping in at some point. But first, we start with Stefan, who's going to be talking about Standing Rock. Take it away. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I should point out first that they could theoretically be listening to the podcast version on a Friday. No, it, it is. It, they could. You know, it doesn't have to be this particular Friday, but in future Fridays, it still remains possible. <laughs> um, other Fridays will exist. Crossing my fingers on that one. Witchcraft. <laughs> um, if, if no other Fridays exist, then then this may be our last show. So to open our last show, <laughs> I feel honored. Yeah, exactly. Welcome. Um, so the the the. It's always interesting uh, to try to take uh, a, a week uh, of news uh, within the environmental field and bring it into like, well, this is the biggest story this week. Uh, because more often than not, you know, there's like California is flooding right now. And I'm not even sure if it's on this show. Um, but the uh, but I think almost unquestionably, the, the the least again, within our context of, of North America, uh, the biggest news this week was that the police removed the last Standing Rock protesters um, there. Well, first, there was uh, earlier this week, there was a basically, they, they were given a deadline of, of, of two o'clock in the afternoon on, I believe, Wednesday. And then uh, and, and they all sort of and they all and majority of protests at the point left. And then on Thursday, they 
law enforcement basically just like did like the most quintessential like we are taking over a town kind of marching style into into the into what was left of the encampment. Um, in, when I say what was left, I say that in part because on the Wednesday when most people left, uh, they burned the it to the ground. Uh, and this is the people who were, were leaving as a mark of protest. This wasn't the authorities burning it. This is the, the people leaving. Yeah, and I think it's really spe- – to even be more specific, I think it's important to mention that this was not like the organizers. This was uh, – as it was, as I read in The Guardian anyway, was a 7-year-old and a 17-year-old. Mm. So it was a bunch of kids basically. Right. Um, but it was, it was sort of a, it, it, but it was also sort of a, it was a, it was a, a piece of of, of protest uh, on on sort of this like to some extent you know it's like well, it's it's you 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 cannot have this space this space is our space and we will we will we you you may be here tomorrow but it will not be the space that we had um, and and the descriptions of sort of what was ultimately sort of marched through sounds very very different from the vibrant community that existed uh, for the past few months and. Obviously, this is sort of the end. Uh, it's it's the end of this part of the story, shall we say? Uh, because a lot of things coming out of this, I think, uh, are really the uh, you know quote a new beginning uh, for for this for both uh, indigenous resistance within the United States uh, and also the environmental movement more generally. Uh, I think there's a decent possibility that we will end up seeing a lot of conversations in the future about how this. Uh, was uh, Standing Rock was perhaps the beginning of, of of a much larger protest and a much larger expansion uh, of um, of action. But just to just to sort of fully explain the the whole story uh, of Standing Rock, um, of course, this is part of this was this was a part of an ongoing. Uh, it was fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, it was in North Dakota. So this may be the last time we have to mention North Dakota for a while. So those North Dakota fans on our show, you can, you can you get, get your fill in now. Um, uh, and it was a, it was, it was the fight, the fight, it was a, a, a fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, led by the indigenous people of that area. The Standing Rock uh, Sioux Reservation uh, was just south of this. And and they were the people who sort of started this fight. They, they you know they uh, their water was going to be contaminated, or you know they worried their water was going to be contaminated. And when it ultimately does, it'll be like one of those sad footnotes. I sort of see like there's going to be a history book written about this at some point, and there'll be like and they fought so they're, they're, to protect their water, and then a life note, and then in 2023 the spill did happen, and then their water was contaminated. <laughs> um, like I feel like that's where we're headed on this one, and. Uh, and they stood up and they and they refused. Basically, they they they, they took they took occupied land uh, peacefully uh, and and without without arms, which should be uh, which should be very much shown in in con- in comparison uh, to the uh, the ranchers, the white ranchers uh, who the Bundy the Bundy the Bundy, yeah, the Bundy ranchers uh, who vi- not violently but who armed to- takeover of a of a of a space and ultimately got off scot free. Well, and one of them was ultimately shot for brandishing a weapon at police. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. no, they, they, they were. Yeah, there was a. Yeah, there was an armed standoff for many engineers, and 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 here this is not that. This is very much a unarmed, uh, peaceful protest that was met with military resistance. Now, Stefan, let's remember there there was an assault rifle on the scene. Uh, it was in the hands of a uh, secret uh, employee of the Dakota Access Pipeline Company, but there was a weapon. Right. Yes. Uh, but not. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, the water protectors themselves uh, this entire time um, were 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 peacefully protesting and were met with unbelievable violence. 
you know, they were shot at with tear gas. Uh, they were hit with rubber bullets. Um, you know, th- th- there. I think one woman sprayed with water cannons and sub-zero and, temperatures. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and none of those things. Like, and again, in contrast to the armed militia who took over a building, hung out in it for like six months, uh, and then and then just left. Uh, is um, is it's 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 night and day to some extent. And I think that in, in the what's important to to understand about this is that this is. This is perhaps a great example of the inherent uh, violence that that our society is in some ways based on. You know, when people say that, you know, that that, or, or when people are sort of get up in, in concern about these extractive resource, extractive um, companies, uh, especially within 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 nations uh, smaller than the United States, even. Uh, it's because this kind of military response to protesters is very common when people say, no, you can't build this pipeline, or no, you can't build this mine, or no, you can't do this sort of thing. Uh, this, it's, a, it's a consistent response by the state. And this was, this was American taxpaying payers' money, which they used to surround a, a peaceful protest for six months with incredibly militarized forces, and then to finally forcefully remove them. And this is in the same place where, you know, there can, where we'll probably see a budget in the next couple months which will cut uh, most public arts funding. And at some point, you're just like, what society do you want to live in? And and what do you want? What do you want people standing up for? Do you want people standing up for uh, ensuring that we get one more oil pipeline to the West Coast, or do you want people standing up for uh, you actually listening to the people who you know, who live on the lands and have lived on the lands well before the U.S. even existed? Or or another another um, you know empirical metric that can be used was you know you know who wants a national endowment for arts and culture when you could have a single extra fighter jet. Yeah, literally one extra fighter jet is what this costs. You know, one B two bomber is like triple what the the arts funding that's getting cost. It's yeah, it's a, it's a it's we've we've it's a complete buy in to a particular like it's 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 ludicrous. It's you know, security quote unquote can can never be too expensive, uh, but anything else, including you know, keeping people alive, uh, is 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 you know out of our is, is out of our hands. You know, um, but the. So when I say that I think this this moment of of being of being removed uh, from the from their from their from their their camp uh, is not an end. Uh, I'm I'm not saying that for myself. I'm saying it because that is what they are saying. Uh, many of the of the of the protesters uh, and the, digi- uh, the different um, indigenous groups that led this um, are seeing this as sort of an interesting uh, beginning of a platform. Uh, to a larger, uh, a larger, or a larger fight, uh, especially the United States. And the United States, you know, here in Canada, I think uh, a slight difference between Canada and the United States is that we, the, the, as much as the indigenous population is 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 consi- con- consistently, you know, uh, attacked by our colonial state, uh, they remain a louder voice on our national stage than they do in the United States, or at least for historically. And in that st- I think this moment really is a moment for the United States to like. There's a quote in this in this one Guardian article that I posted, in which uh, one of the um, one of the indigenous uh, leaders there, uh, a woman named Black Elk, 
uh, said that the standing f- has a quote that said basically exactly this. People forgot we existed. I even had people tell me, I didn't know that you guys were still here. So like this is like these are these are people responding to the indigenous voices like still he- like there's there's a lot to unpack in that sentence. Um, but but I think it's important to note that that that's how some of the people there are seeing it. Like this was a moment of like, no, yeah, yes, we're still here. We've always been here. Um, and you got and we and we're now like not that they weren't fighting to make our voices heard. But I think there's a, a, perhaps a larger microphone uh, given to them. Uh, and that this standing rock provided it galvanized some people in a way that I don't think anyone fully understood, because uh, these sort of versions of these fights exist everywhere. Uh, which again, I think, is, which is also important to note, because that's that is what makes these water protectors so heroic. Is that Standing Rock wasn't like a one-off that they were happen to fight. This was what they do consistently around the world, um, and how often we ignore that, uh, or how often that just goes unseen versus the one time we happen to notice. You know, this isn't like a, this wasn't like a, they were like, all right, put all of our PR effort into this one moment. It was, they're doing this all the time and just, we happen to pay attention this one time. Um, and, and I think that, that, that fact though, does mean that they can use, you can still use this network that they've created of people who are paying attention in Standing Rock and, and, and use it to, 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 f- to push the, the larger conversation forward. And, and the next fight might actually get, you know, might get a little more play and might, might have the, a little more, like, it could be the beginning of a ball rolling rather than the end of something happening. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to, 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 to close out uh, at least the thoughts that I had on this thing um, is it was, the last piece of that, it's not, it's, even this fight itself is not actually over. There's, and, and again, this is also interesting in that there's a, a relative division actually within, uh, even within the within the indigenous people uh, who are are fighting this battle, uh, for, because a, a big percentage of people actually moved away from this idea of being on the site into a legal challenge. Um, and, and you know, here in Canada, we've seen the power of these legal challenges. They have they have consistently the indigenous populations have consistently brought environmental uh, successes um, to uh, through these legal challenges. At the same time, there is it, it is a very different tact, um, and and so that, that's still going forward. Uh, so and that is where where at least one of the part of the nation is is, is focusing. Mm. But I think that but the final piece is that it's important to realize that no one can speak for everyone, uh, and so even a movement like this that feels very cohesive, uh, at least from the outside. Again, because we just we basically because we're on the v- very fringes of the outside, um, we can sort of look in and like yeah, we presume all is a homogeneous thousand people who are all there uh, who all basically agreed. Uh, but of course that's not the case. Uh, of course there's different tactics. Of course we will disagree on the tactics, and I don't think we sh- I think we shouldn't understand disagreement on tactics as as a failure on either part of the ideas, but just an expectation of the fact that we are multifaceted human beings, and you put a thousand people in one space, and they'll disagree on how to do things. Well, and I think the most important part of that, Stefan, is that there I guarantee you that there are folks who are who have come out and have joined that protest who have no problem with the pipeline, they just don't want it going through that route, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things, like even as environmentalists where we can be very quick sometimes to sort of take, 
you know, take something and say, aha, this is, this is us. Right. But yeah, it's the, 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 the point here is that there's appropriate consultation, a real discussion needs to be had and not just have a company plow through. But doing that also doesn't mean that my personal opinions or your personal opinions are the opinions of the people who are dissenting. It's just a group of dissenters with a variety of different opinions. And I think that's the conversation. It's not the conclusion that's therefore apparent by the crowds, but the conversation it demands. I think. Yeah. And I, and I think the, I think the, the environmental movement itself has to realize that in the same way that they couldn't de- declare victory when w- with the with this fight when it, when Obama stopped it briefly in December, we also must understand that um, we we should avoid trying to co-opt this movement. Uh, you know, it's very easy to start saying things like "we are doing this" uh, or look, "look how look at like how our fights are going." Um, and in language, I'm learning more and more and more matters. Uh, and so I think saying we and are in these scenarios is very, very dangerous because it, it, it it's not us. Or, or We're over be, here. Or at least be very specific about what you mean by we, which is people that you know want the police to stop shooting tear gas, but not necessarily a group of people that all agree that the pipeline shouldn't be built or that climate change or, or anything else. But I mean even more so that, that we as, you know, as, as Canadian people who are in, you know, in Toronto mm. uh, are not the people who are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, as media, we have, a, I think, a, a funny little piece of this now. It's we're used to, I think, some ways saying, you know, reporting what other people are doing. Um, but as environmentalists, I think we have to understand that this is an indigenous water protector fight and it must be always presented as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it's not this is not an environmentalist's thing mm-hmm. uh, in that I'm sure many of the people on the thing uh, like on the um, who are at Standing Rock would not identify with uh, with even environmentalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we've had conversation on the show before, mm-hmm. um, but that we are actually just uh, we we can stand behind and in allyship with, uh, but it's the water protectors that are doing these are, are having this particular fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a really quick comment. And I'm actually going to give Jeff the last word here before the break. Um, so my quick comment was that there's two things I noticed in the Guardian article stuff and that really caught my attention. One of them was that the uh, the police – I forget if it was the police chief or somebody else – specifically pointed out that this was being done for their own protection because of the summer thaw. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and which is, which is interesting for a different reason. Uh, and the other thing was that they were being – not only did they A, but the fact that they were making a point of publicizing it B as two separate points, uh, that they were being shipped off to a local township and being given free hotel vouchers and all this other stuff. So now I think, I mean, that's basic human decency, but why are they making us think about that? And why are they even bothering with the cloak of this is for protecting them from the spring thought? Well, mm-hmm. I think it's because there was such a reaction that the state, you know, the state wanted to go through with it, uh, but there was such a reaction they were overwhelmed. And and now by having Trump force it through after essentially losing the battle and then now sort of winning the battle, I think they're really afraid of, you know, tying in all that energy that was anti, you know, to into going into support of the, the, the water protectors getting tied together with the anti-Trump thing that being like, oh, this is, you know, maybe Trump can take the heat, but at a state level locally, we can't take, we're afraid of the amount of heat this could bring down. And they're trying to publicize like, hey, okay, we don't want to be seen as the bad guys now. Uh, We want this to happen, but we don't want to have anything to do with the responsibility for the fallout. I thought that was very, very interesting. Last word goes to Jeff. Um, I guess the the couple segues there, we talked about the uh, arts funding being cut and, uh, uh, I, I always like to bring things through an artistic lens. Uh, I have a bias because I'm an artist and uh, co-founder of the Bureau of Power and Light Art Collective. Um, and so with that and with the, the segue of the water as, as sort of a, a, a topic, uh, there's a couple things that I just want to uh, point out for uh, listeners to explore further 
through the arts. Um, one really quickly is Edward Bertinsky, of course, who uh, is the photographer from manu- Manufactured Landscapes. These gorgeous, beautiful uh, pictures of mass devastation of the environment uh, as a way of engaging people into these issues in a way that's not screaming, yelling at them. Listen to these things. They need to be addressed but presenting in a different way that engages an audience in, into these kind of uh, things. Uh, he did a thing about, uh, I think it was four years ago, Watermark, uh, uh, which discusses our impacts on the water and, and effects environmentally. Closer to home and coming up actually next month is the Water Docks Festival. Water Docks Festival is uh, put on by an organization called Ecologos, uh, who uh, I'm just going to read off their website really quick, is Ecologos takes a unique approach to motivation rather than resorting to doom and gloom and guilt to move people we appeal to their fundamental connection to nature we all have powerful memories of encounters with the natural world our programs reconnect people with with these deeply felt experiences and nurturing commitment to action for a sustainable future one of their uh things that they produce is the water docks festival it's coming up march 29th to april 2nd uh these are going to be shown at the hot docks ted rogers cinema 252 blur street west and there's also going to be an opening reception at the center for social innovation um to kick this all off and uh hopefully our our good friend bob eisenberger who's a uh a beloved member of Center for Social Innovation. Maybe we can get him in here for a show uh, just leading up to that and we can have him fill us in a bit more on that. Just a couple things there, just quick, just uh, for people to pursue further and uh, learn more about why water is important to us and do so through artistic lens. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jeff. And uh, uh, we're going to go now to our first music break. What are we going to listen to? All right. Um, good morning, everyone. If it's Friday for you or if it's not, uh, happy whatever day it is. Um, today we're going to be listening to... Sanity 89.5 FM. I'm your host, uh, Darren Kester, and I'm going to be uh, discussing uh, one quick news item, and then I'm going to be relating it to a future show. So the news item I've chosen uh, to spend a little bit more time on relative to the other news items is a report uh, from National Observer talking about how the experts at the Fraser Institute report, uh, report on coal and clean air is scientifically flawed. Um, the Fraser Institute is an institute that has received uh, much of, well, I, I'm not sure actually the ratio. I shouldn't say much, uh, but uh, definitely some and possibly a large amount. I just don't have the information in front of me uh, from the Koch brothers. And I think it's very important to start there because the uh, Koch brothers, uh, as you hopefully are aware, uh, are uh, some of the richest people in the United States. They have heavy investments across the fossil fuel industry from uh, gas and coal and all sorts of uh, dirty energy. And they have uh, become notorious, not just for dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into American elections, uh, but also uh, creating dark funds where they go out to other billionaires who don't necessarily or other rich people or other companies who don't necessarily want to take on the heat of the spotlight uh, to give them money and for them to invest basically you know it's the evil empire they're uh, they're you know how we're going to put our money together and make sure that we get a bunch of laws that protect us and our profits and screw their screw everybody else um so it's not surprised then that the Fraser Institute who is receiving some of their funding from them uh possibly a large amount I don't know um is putting out a report challenging the report saying that really getting rid of coal, phasing out coal was, well, not that effective. Uh, The problem is, is that uh, this study is uh, deeply flawed, says both the government scientists and a number of uh, independent reviewers uh, talking about 
um, how the essentially their methodology is just really flawed. So what they've done is they've taken just two uh, metrics, so sulfur oxides. Uh, and, uh, oh, sorry, sulfur oxides were, uh, not considered. I, I apologize. I don't have the, the two things in front of me. Ah, nitrogen oxides and, uh, and something else. And, but basically what they took two indications of things that come from, uh, coal, uh, burning and, and said that there was, there was a minimal improvements in those two metrics. Now, the reason I think this is really important is not because I think this report matters much. Um, it's because this is a really good indication of really basically underlining, uh, how, uh, people who have nefarious purposes can use scientific sounding things to try and influence the public into their public policy. If you take any issue, um, I can design a study. Sabina knows this is true. Sabina, Sabina could help me with this. Um, I could design a study to prove anything I wanted about any topic. As long as you don't care if your methodology is sound, I can prove any point on any topic anywhere. So part of the reason here is they took two things. Okay, so there's two uh, bad uh, chemicals that get produced as a byproduct. They're bad for human health as a, as a uh, product of coal. We're going to forget about the fact that air moves. We're going to forget about the fact that there's other sources for these chemicals. And we're going to forget about a number of other things that affect these numbers. Only look at those two numbers and say, oh, look, they only improve slightly. Um, this is inherently dishonest. It does not accept the fact that this is a complex system and is extremely uh, uh, similar to the techniques that are used. It's called cherry picking data uh, that are used to try and attack climate science. Now, the problem here is not that there's a bad report being put out because the experts immediately identified not just saying that they disagree with it because they don't like its conclusion, but pointing out specifically why, which is something that is, is extremely uh, uh, noticeably absent from much of the criticism coming from, uh, you know, industry side sources uh, is they just, you know, like to make claims of flaws, but they don't really have the data to back them up. And the people who actually know what they're talking about largely all agree. Um, so I don't want to get too much into the science. Honestly, I don't think for the purposes of our program, I don't think it matters. The, the point is they put out a, a silly report uh, that with a simple and pure intention of maybe hopefully confusing a few government people, but mostly for the point of muddying the waters in the media and trying to create a false narrative to convince the public uh, that this has all been a complete waste of time and that they've basically paid you know for something that they didn't need to. Um, <clears throat> Another story that came up, of course, was moving uh, the pipeline regulator. Uh, the, apparently, Canadians don't like that the NEB is, is in Calgary. Uh, something Brian Mulroney did uh, in 1991 was move the offices from Ottawa to Calgary uh, as well. So there's a lot of concern about that. So how does this tie together? Well, so the, the, there's a few other stories here as well. I'm not even going to get into it. I'm just going to read the, the titles of them. Uh, one of them is only 14% of plastics are recycled. Uh, can innovate, tech innovation tackle the rest? And the other one is an article by Bill, or an article about Bill Gates, uh, saying that the robot that takes your job should pay taxes. Uh, the the line that runs through all of these is, I think that these are all uh, indicative of extremely serious, ongoing, and pervasive uh, public policy problems that. Uh, prevent us from from being able to come up with real solutions. And I'm going to come back to it, and we're going to do a show, possibly several shows. Stefan, as soon as he's uh, any time now, is going to have time to be able to sit down with me, and we're <laughs> going to work on uh, coming up with essentially a fake political platform. Um, but I'm going to sort of test the waters here with a couple of these ideas because they relate directly to these stories. So one of them uh, having to do with the people are uh, bad at science, basically, was my note here that I made to myself, which was if you people without scientific training, um, it's extremely easy to confuse them with scientific sounding language, which is why 
in, uh, industries pay so much money for fake reports. Sometimes it's because they want to trick the government, but usually it's because they want to affect the conversation of the public, right? So some, uh, the uh, joker who's responsible for the green beanery here in, in Toronto, uh, which is a uh, cafe that likes to seem to insinuate, although it doesn't explicitly say anywhere that it's you know environmentally minded, actually funds a bunch of anti-client science nonsense. Uh, but he doesn't like to publicize that. He, instead, he likes to have meetings there where he'll have some speaker come in and invite the public to come into his business, by the way. Uh, I'm sure they're not encouraged to spend money while they're there and have somebody who's, you know, just basically literate enough to say scientific sounding things to a bunch of people who don't know anything about science to convince them that essentially the experts who actually do have expertise in this area are wrong. Uh, my policy proposal here is that we need an independent body of, uh, of scientists uh, that are representative from across the a, uh, the scientific spectrum and independent and unelected uh, or perhaps internally elected, you know, however it gets put there, but arm's length and having nothing to do with the government uh, review board that would review the scientific validity of any findings uh, that are relevant to public policy if they're going to be used in uh, argument for the creation of bills or public policy. Uh, this would be an independent review, uh, and you would just stack this panel full of so many people from uh, a variety A, so you wouldn't have to worry about, oh, this is pol politics because, of course, they're from the Climate Bureau. Of course, they're going to say that. People from all over uh, the professional spectrum with a, a wide range of backgrounds from wide varieties of public and private sources, uh, and this would be an apparent review body. They would not have the ability to actually veto legislation, but they would be required, uh, the, or they would have the power to, or and be obligated to. Uh, the government would be obligated to run past science they wanted to use to inform public policy by them, and their 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 findings would be publicized, not uh, with, with a mind of producing reports that are readable by the public. Uh, I think this would incredibly strengthen uh, our democracy, and I think it's an incredibly easy thing to do. I think the people that would be against that are, frankly, dishonest. Uh, another one that comes up uh, that I want to come back to uh, has to do with the packaging laws. We talked, Stefan, uh, recently about uh, all of this uh, plastic waste. Um, I would like to know why it is legal at all anywhere in Canada to sell packaging for consumer products uh, that is not recyclable. We have a number of recyclable materials. Uh, I often, I, uh, as Jeff knows and Stefan knows uh, as well, because I see them at CSI, know I work in the cafe. And uh, in the cafe, we have a lot of food packaging that comes in. And there's even a lot of stuff from like vegan products or, or fair trade and all this stuff that comes in in composite material plastic. So it's materials that would be recyclable if they were independent, but they've been produced in such a way as to render them unrecyclable. You had 100% recyclable packaging and you then produced it in a way that made it unrecyclable. What are we doing? This is the easiest law you could possibly pass. We have a number of recyclable options. There are wide varieties of things. This would also spur research and technology, not only into recycling technology, but into material sciences to create new ways of uh, biofilm polymers and all sorts of things. This would direct, it's the, the hand of the market without picking the winners. This is the thing that, that you know some right-wingers always complain about. Oh, we don't want government picking the winners. No, we do want the government picking winning te technological directions. We do want uh, the government leading technology places we need it to go without telling it what how to solve problems. We do want to tell them what problems to solve. Uh, and I think this is a really easy place to start. I think you could, with a basis of this type of way of thinking, I think you could develop uh, many more policies. We'll come back and talk to that later. Uh, but that's something, I mean, we could do, Justin, you could do that today, buddy. You could do that today. Uh, you create it on a five-year phase-in. Give them some time to get a running start. In five years, all material packaging will have to be uh, recyclable or biodegradable. Full stop, end of story, across the board. Give them five years to work it out. Uh, but there's really no reason not to. Uh, I really would love to know what anyone's argument against that would be. Uh, and finally, before I go to comment here, I've got about five minutes left. Uh, I want to come back to one. Um, so 
I have the idea, and I've proposed this before, about the idea of uh, not only a minimum income, and this is something even the Green Party's uh, Elizabeth May has started talking about recently. It's it's come up uh, a little bit is this idea of a minimum income about the fact that it's just actually empirically better for society if people aren't starving in the streets, and and you know the, which creates, if for no other heartless reason than this, creates uh, a lot of cost having to deal with. Uh, this the hard way by dealing with you know by emergency room visits or by just I mean if you're going to be really nasty and cold and brutal about it I mean even just going around and you know paying people to go get the bodies of people that have frozen to death in the street or starved to death in the street it's actually way cheaper and as, as Canadian townships have started finding out there was a pilot project uh, in the north recently where they were like I didn't even believe it until we did it but it's actually cheaper just to give everybody houses than it is to try and you know solve these problems through social services uh, the other end of that though is how do you pay for it. Well, I propose something even more crazy liberal than that, which is a maximum income. Now, before people go, whoa, maximum income, set it as high as you want. Set it at $10 million a year. Set it at $100 million a year. But there should be a limit under which we accept as a society that there is no possible way that someone has contributed enough to society to deserve that much income. They're gaming the system. So we could do it the hard way, which is create some complex uh, new tax system. Uh, we could do it the hard way by uh, trying to create valuations of value of services, or you could just make it really easy. We have a flawed system. We're going to fix it later as fast as we can. But for now, nobody deserves to make more than $100 million a year. You do not possibly contribute enough to society to deserve that much cover recourse. Uh, you're taking advantage of a loophole, or you're in a, you're in a field or, or engaged in an activity that has a disproportionate payback. Uh, we have people starving to death. I'm sorry you can't have a seventh yacht. Um, so what I say to this to wrap up my section, uh, oh, it looks like we'll have time for one comment. So who's somebody decide who wants to pick in? Uh, Stefan usually likes to disagree with my liberal fantasies here. So, um, maybe <laughs> step, we'll go to Stefan on that one. Uh, but the last one was B is that, um, the, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, trade deals. And one of the interesting comments, uh, I've gotten from people, a lot of people who, who were saying, you know, we should, we should be, we should have wanted the TPP. It's bad that we lost it. Talk about a lot of the upsides. Uh, and there were some upsides. There was some good stuff in there, and no doubt about it. Uh, the problem is, is that the cost wasn't worth it. The cost of making, uh, having uh, corporations be able to make laws that make it illegal to pass laws against them is not worth any cost uh, because we've sold our soul, literally. Mm-hmm. And as literally as you could, we've, we've sold our democratic soul for the cost of a few minor increments. It's like someone saying, give me $1,000 next week and I'll give you a dollar today. Uh, it's nonsense and it's insanity, but the concept works. Uh, and a lot of people have noted there's problems with the UN. So I say uh, trade deals is foreign policy. We're going to uh, implement minimum and maximum income. We're going to put all sorts of trade packaging laws. We're going to um, do stuff talking about independent bodies to review science. And then here's what we're going to say. Our primary trading partners are going to be anybody that agrees to have those same laws. And what it will do is it will prevent – it's going to do a million things. I understand this is a big discussion. But the, the, the point I want to talk about today is that the number one way that corporations take advantage of countries is by playing them off each other. Well, if you want to pass this law or that law that's going to protect your environment, well, then we're going to move our business elsewhere. We're somewhere where they don't have these laws. And I see the only opposition to this possible to uh, – because we can't ever get – because of the broken system about the way that the UN is organized – uh, I think trade deals is the way to go. Uh, we're going to create some really beneficial trading terms, and you know who's going to get them? Anybody. Anybody who agrees to also implement these uh, uh, laws in their country so that international, multinational corporations and private interests can no longer play us off each other. We're going to demand uh, that there's a minimum level of uh, habitability and respect for Earth and our citizens, and we're going to give trader preferential trade deference to others who agree, and hopefully we can build a worldwide coalition that works for people one country at a time through trade. Stefan, you get a word on this. 
there's so much there. Uh, I know that was an epic rant. So, like, a couple thoughts. Uh, first, I think th- your last idea leads to the one thing that I've consistently tried to figure out, uh, which is that that idea will make everything cost dramatically more money. Um, and that it also happens to be something I actually believe is necessary. Uh, like I think everything has to cost a lot more money for us to live in a society that is yeah. n- that is not reducing our environmental existence to to what it is currently. Um, you know, and you know we cannot live in a world where I can walk outside, get 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 a a thing to drink out of, and then immediately throw it away for for free. Like that's a that's a re- ridiculous way of doing this um and 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 of course that you cannot to make the statement uh everything must cost more is inherently feels inherently um regressive uh because of the fact that there's a whole bunch of people in society who currently can't afford a lot of what they need uh and so telling those people who are struggling that they that they are paying too little for the stuff they still can barely afford is obviously an incredibly difficult scenario uh and so i think any sort of any Anything like that has to then come with a incredibly, incredibly progressive tax structure, um, and you know it, it's like it's. And you can see there are places where that happens, and you're paying fifteen dollars for a beer, but at the same time, you don't you know you don't have to worry if you if, if, if you, the rest of what is happening around you is being protected. Um, and I think that's a, it's a fundamental shift of how we currently see freedom. Um, the the other thing is that I do not think that like, your maximum income idea won't actually like there's there's so many ways of difficulty with that idea um that i think a very progressive tax system that increases the percentage higher and higher and higher um especially on uh dividends uh and and especially on 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 ways that ways that stocks make you money and stuff like that because like i could be like i make a dollar like Mitt romney made what one dollar when he was running for president uh but still made but still got taxed at 13 because he was making millions millions of dollars with 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 through stocks um and i so i think there's like we've intentionally created a tax system that actually allows rich people to avoid it and just creating a tax system that doesn't do that um and and doesn't do that in a way that successfully um forces people to, to, to buy in and, and you know if we're taxing them at 40 50 percent we can actually get that money back we can if, if we successfully do that we've just so consistently failed at actually keeping money uh controllable by by any government uh you know let alone let, we recorded the panama papers last year and that ever that seems like that seems like decades ago now um but like avoiding tax is what people who have money are very very good at that's basically what rich accountants jobs are um and so i think there's there's a there's a lot to be done uh mm-hmm. to to successfully find a way to actually get the money that that we should be that we should be within our system back into our system because uh, instead we've created a system which you know you can avoid almost all tax if you know what you're doing yeah. uh, which you know and again it doesn't matter how hard you fight it's like you know the the rules exist for this middle band of about ninety percent and then there's people who are so poor they have to find a way to survive and people are so rich who can do whatever they like um, yeah. and we got to find that, a way that's to why extend I like that. the that's why I like the the uh, anyway I mean we're we're gonna come we back not only could we but we are gonna come back and spend a whole a whole show on this but essentially that's where my idea of just there's a you know nobody's allowed to have so little money that they're starving to death and they don't have a house and we will put a flat cap at the top end. 
at as low as it needs to be to make sure that happens. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of other stuff that needs to get into that. We're, we could, we can and will spend an entire show getting into the nuance there. Um, but I, the, the point I really wanted to come across here was that if you talk about any of these ideas in isolation, I'm, I myself could come up with 100 problems with them. The point is, is that you could, we have myriad complex problems and we need a more comprehensive and complex – like none of these – none of my ideas work in isolation. But they, I would argue, and we will argue in the future, and we'll make maybe several shows about this, about how they can and, and I think could very easily work uh, in combination. But if you deal with them in isolation, yeah, they sound crazy. Uh, now, that being said, if you have thoughts about this, if you have other policy ideas you'd like to suggest, if you have some criticism about this, uh, even though we didn't really dig too much into it, um, please email us. You can do that through the website, greenmajority.ca. But we'll leave it there for now. We're going to go to our final music break, and then we'll come back and we'll hear some news from Sabina. So take it away. All right, we're back. This is the final. We're in the home stretch here, the Green Majority. I'm your host, Aaron Kaster. I've just spent a whole bunch of time speed talking. Stefan did the first bit. Uh, We have about 15 minutes left. I'm going to leave it for Sabina, and I'm also going to encourage Jeff to jump in, and I'm going to not jump in. So take it away, Sabina. Okay, thank you. Um, So we've talked a lot about policy and science, and science always comes back a little bit in these conversations, but it's never really at the forefront. And I've just recently had a conversation with somebody that was saying, well, um, you can't really have a bunch of scientists together because they don't really know how to speak and they don't really, they, like media always misinterprets them and, and then they get shy and nervous. So I, I don't know. There's a whole. There's a whole. I, I forgot to mention that I would be the spokesperson for this group. <laughs> it wouldn't be my opinions, but I'd be the attack dog that went out and fought for them. So don't worry about that part. No, no, no. But I just mean that even though even though scientists should be informing public policy, it's very rare that pub, like scientists do inform public policy. So I think uh, going back to your earlier what you were talking about earlier, uh, the independent body of scientists. I really like that idea, and it seems to me very simple. Like you said, it's why doesn't that exist. But anyways, (laughs) so two articles this week that um, uh, I really stood out to me were on fracking and the negative effects that it can have in our environment, which we've already talked about on the show many, many times. However, um, recently the EPA has suggested that there could have been more than 6,648 spills in four states alone. So that would be Colorado, New Mexico, North Dakota, and Pennsylvania in the last 10 years. Uh, and for this specific study, the researchers examined state-level spill data, and um, they saw that there were in unconventional oil and gas developments at 31,000 fracked wells in the four states. So what was really interesting to me was that the article talks about the fact that different states have different levels of reporting. So some states, like New Mexico, will can only report um, for a spill over 42 gallons, and then others uh, can only report over 220 gallons um, of, of, um, of spills. So the, the problem with this is that not only are we not informing the public of what's really going on, is that some states can completely um, you know, destroy the environment under 220 gallons and get away with it without reporting it at all, and no one really knows what's going on. And uh, others have have a lot more stringent stringent policies. So I think this really comes back to um, being transparent and having having corporations be transparent about what they're actually doing and the effects that they're having on the environment. And another study, which is kind of very related to this, is um, 
it was uh, recently published in the Science of the Total Environment, and it shows that wastewater releases, including briny water that contains petroleum and other pollutants, um, altered the diversity, numbers, and functions of microbes. And so this shifts uh, the in the microbial community indicated changes in their, I guess, respiration and nutrient cycle, which means that that's all they do. Microbes only <laughs> just control nutrient cycles, so basically changed completely the way that they behaved. And the study also documented changes in antibiotic resistance, which is um, what we've already talked about, and this is a huge issue, especially um, personally for me. Um, antibiotic resistance in downstream sediments, um, as well as antibiotic resistance in our wastewater, in our water, in our environment. And a lot of people, I think uh, the study said that over 22,000 Americans alone die from anti-resistant, uh, uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria, and over 2 million people get sick just from that every year. Mm -hmm. And this and this is also very important to note that public health is also very important very related to environmental health because we're part of our environment. Therefore, whatever is hurting the environment is also hurting us. And all of the chemicals and all the spills that we put in our, in our environment are not only destroying the ecosystems that we live in, but they're also destroying our bodies and the way that we've been dealing with things for, you know, thousands of years. Um, I don't know if anybody has any comments on that. Well, I, I was actually thought this would be a great uh, spot to redirect to Jeff because a lot of the uh, items that you were just talking about are, you know, pr predominantly themes that are the subject of environmental art generally, right? I mean, environmental art. To uh, you are the expert here. You tell me, but my well, I don't know if I'm an expert. My understanding, relative to me, you're an expert. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I mean, t generally, when I've seen environmental art, it's it's sort of of two things. It's either celebrating the beauty of nature. Yep. And our connection to it, or it's sort of which is which is important, which is to reaffirm and to underscore that. Yeah, uh, or or it's as you said, the Bertinsky pieces. It's sort of the beauty of destruction, and it's sort of a, a you know like a hey, like you know, th think about this. this. You know, this may not be in your backyard, but you are doing this, or you're contributing to. That. Yeah, in directly dire directly pointing at certain issues and raising awareness about uh, key issues. Uh, one guy that comes to mind, uh, Scott. Uh, Canaro, who's a Canadian photographer who did a, a series that was just at the Stephen Bulger Gallery in uh, Queen West here in Toronto just in last uh, December, I believe, uh, who took photographs in the Alps of the receding glaciers and how these glaciers were actually uh, de determined a lot of the borders uh, between these countries. Um, but these borders are moving and because of climate change, they're disappearing. And so there's this question of these, this sort of these borderless so-called regions because of climate change and it and it's a uh, you can talk about climate change but then you can just look at these photographs of these glaciers that are receding and kind of get right to the heart of that and make an emotional connection to this this issue right off the bat by these beautiful landscape pictures of of something that no one ever thought oh well these will always be here they're always going to determine the borders well actually they're not they're disappearing so what does that mean and what are the broader implications of why that is you know, so that's uh, another um, poignant example there of how art can be that sort of point of contact to connect to these issues that you're talking about, where where a scientist might rap, rhyme off a bunch of things that people might not 
get or might not connect with, but if you see this beautiful landscape uh, picture or you hear this song that's directly associated with it that you can connect with it, it's more effectual, I think, in in raising awareness about these things. And your own personal connection and how, as you say, the environment, it's not just the environment, we are part of that, right? And it's interdependent. So what is happening there is happening to us as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think that it, different types of people need different types of campaigns, if yeah. I can say. So, for example, there will be a lot of people that will be extremely touched by an art piece. And then there will be some people that need, okay, I need some facts. I really like this um, art. But she looks at me as she says that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is nice, but where's the data? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I'm kind of one of those people as well. I like both. And I mm-hmm. think it's important to get to have all of these um, different independent actors, whether you're an artist, whether you're a scientist, whether you're a media person, a policy, health person, because it's it's all so interconnected and so de- interdependent on one another. It's definitely a group. Of, and each, yeah. They rely on each other, right, um, to, to have a real coherent, effective message that's backed up by science but maybe has the engagement of an artistic appeal. Um, yeah, it, it really is. A, it's a collective effort mm-hmm. that, that it needs to be, to be effective, I well, think, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, Stefan, I wanted to throw back to you here because I know, like, essentially, like, we've been referring to you being incredibly busy for quite some time, and, and it's only come up, I think, once or twice that you've mm-hmm. actually been doing. But you've been involved in the Toronto for Everyone. Last night was, uh, you're, a li- you're a little sleepy today, although I should say not as sleepy as you've been sometimes. You know, it's, it's such the beginning. I had to, you look I had surprisingly to tone it down. fresh. Uh, that's what I was trying to I'll say. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. I had to tone it down last night because it's the three more days of this. So. Right. Uh, but I mean, one of the things that because of through of this, uh, one of the things that you've been hyper focused on, I know for quite some time is, is inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And, and this has been sort of indirectly what you've been working on, uh, for two months now. And so I thought you might be able to, to comment on, on sort of that, the, the idea of sort of different ways in which we share knowledge and whatnot, maybe not sharing your right. own thing, but just sharing your sort of understanding of the diversity problem, if you will, or the, 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 the trouble or the effort required to properly be diverse and, and inclusive. Well, there's a there's a bunch of different things there, right? There's there's this there's this. It requires almost an entire reframing of how we understand uh, what we are doing. Um, like more often than not, uh, what I'm learning more and more is more often than not, we, we we think and we 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 present the people who sort of are, feel comfortable in front of 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 of, of the stage or comfortable leading uh, are are encouraged to continue doing that, um, and 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 then so they keep doing it and they more and more doing that, uh, but. There are so many reasons why particular people, myself 100% included, are consistently encouraged to do that, um, that it becomes a, a, a massive effort of unlearning uh, to, to really fully understand the importance of stepping back uh, and, and stepping behind. Um, and, and, and instead of trying to be the – like it's one thing to be on uh, – you know, like for example – the big, I started this show uh, with 20 minutes about Standing Rock. Um, th- I think that's because I, because I think it's an important issue. Uh, th- th- I'm still not the people living it, um, and we don't have the resources currently to go talk to the people living it. Uh, you know, and Democracy Now has done a great job actually covering that story by mm-hmm. talking to the people living it. And I think what Democracy Now is doing is a great example of what is actually required to be able to do this. Um, and and the, the the long and short of it is, it takes a lot of resources to to begin to make our very inaccessible world accessible uh, to in, in every facet, 
whether it's whether it's for people who are you know historically marginalized, whether it's for people who are who have just specific uh, you know di- you know like the, the world is disabling to them. Um, these are these different. Uh, avenues and it takes a, a mass amount of resources and people have to own up to that uh, and what I think bothers me the most about the sort of talk about you know personal responsibility and stuff like that is that personal responsibility only matters if you aren't if society isn't keeping a bunch of people down already um, and so uh, and so I think that's the problem here is that we're not adequately um, resourcing uh, the ability to live in a world in which this is, this is not a problem um, because we because we're not putting money towards it. There's not a budget line for inclusivity, uh, and there has to be uh, until we've built a society where you don't need that budget line. But now we definitely do. Uh, but we're not even putting any money to it, and it's that's the problem. There, there was a tweet that I was that came up on my highlights uh, this week earlier. I, I don't remember the parties involved. I don't remember the person who tweeted the tweet I saw or the tweet that that they were responding to. But someone said something about. I'm sure from context it was somebody you know voicing support for Trump or something. And and what they said was freedom is the ability to buy anything you want. And the person corrected them and sort of did the quote thing, and quoted them and said, No, 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 you've got that wrong. That's wealth. You're describing wealth as the freedom <laughs> to buy anything you want. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and and but that's I mean that's uh, you know something I've been looking at and I've put some stuff up on my personal Facebook page recently about uh, just privilege. But I mean that's really the thing. I mean, and it's sort of one of those things where it's like Pandora's box a little bit. And it's maybe the wrong analogy, but uh, just the idea where it's like it's it's you keep looking and you you just the rabbit hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper, right? I mean, I posted something on I was going in for an appointment and I've come up before. You know, I canceled last year, and so I was going in for one of my appointments. And as I'm going into the hospital, there's a big sign that says one of the top five cancer research centers in the world. Uh, and I wonder how many people, and I bet it's not very many, go in like, holy, how amazing it is and how privileged am I that this is less than a kilometer. I can walk here from my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's privilege. And the point of privilege is, is that, you, you know, is that you don't notice when you have it. It's the people that don't have it that notice. Um, and I think so the first step in that is just sort of being aware that when someone, you know, accuses you of privilege or, or accuses someone of privilege or accuses a group of privilege and you are po- perhaps part of that group or you see yourself as part of that group before you get all indignant and, and sort of, no, I'm not and blah, blah, blah. Um, actually like just sort of think about it for a minute and what it would be like to not have the thing that you have uh, and acknowledge that other people don't. And that might mean, uh, you know, in some cases, in my, my example, that hospital, in other cases, it might be access to clean air and clean water. Uh, it might be access to the halls of power. Uh, it might be access to not being abused by police officers because nobody's around. Um, this is pervasive problem. And I think this is just sort of, we're looking at a f- sort of fractal incarnations of this. Um, but I think if, if, you know, sort of step one in, to, in, in 2017 with Trump and climate change and everything else, uh, I think uh, Stefan's word about being sort of stepping back, uh, whether that be to let someone who actually is impacted speak or whether it is just to take a moment to actually think, um, we need to do more of that. Um, and probably if you're listening, you have more privilege than most of the people who are affected by most of the problems that we have today. And I think that's – I can say that pretty easily off the top. Uh, we have a bonus show for you today, but I don't have time to describe it. You'll have to trust me that this one is going to be interesting. Um, the, my co-hosts don't even know, and boy, are they going to be surprised what I want to talk about. But I'm not going to mention it there. This has been The Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening the listener. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll hope you stick around for the bonus show if you're listening on the podcast. If not, have a good green week, folks. Take care. Stay green, and we'll see you soon. And we hope you enjoyed the regular portion of our program. We have our bonus show coming up this week, which is uh, a, a serious but through a very fun, I think, and hopefully people will find it fun, entertaining and informative discussion about a somewhat 
awkward topic, which is uh, we talk about sex robots. Yes, you heard me right. We talk about sex robots within the context of uh, the modern world and within the context of the environment. Before we get to that uh, very entertaining, I think, but also informative section of our show, I also want to thank very much uh, a new member, Jim Quinn, who signed up uh, as well. Thank uh, a member, Devin uh, Arthenbot. Arthur Knott, I apologize, <laughs> uh, for upgrading their membership. Welcome to our patron uh, membership team. We hope you enjoy the bonus show uh, coming up now. If you want to be a member as well and join these great folks in being supporters of us, you can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. But now for the bonus show. We are now in the bonus show. I'm uh, still joined by uh, Kay, one of our techs. Kai, I keep calling you Kay because of the spelling, it's but you go like say Kai. Kay, but it's Kai. Yeah. Okay, apologies. Kai. It's fine. Jeff Donner is still here. I am. And uh, Sabina is also still here. Stefan is uh, having to run. So I'm going to get to what my actual point is indirectly here in, in a moment because it's not the majority of, I think, the value of the conversation that I want to have, but it is sort of the fun part. Uh, so I'm going to tease it first, and then we're going to sort of back up to it slowly. And which is that I'm pro sex robot. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's an important thing that we should be not not necessarily putting research dollars into. I don't think I don't think it's a research priority, but I do think it's it should be culturally accepted and that we should have a con- an adult conversation about sex robots. Now, why are we talking about that? Well, the place that I want to start at that from was that there is a very old. Uh, it's I think it's actually from the 70s. Too bad Stefan had to leave. He's I know he's more familiar with this topic than I am. But there's basically a, a very indir- indirect seeming racist thing that North American people like to say, which is that we should talk about an overpopulation as an environment issue. And the reason that's racist is because there are other poorer countries that with uh, populations that are growing much faster who individual per capita have insignificantly minuscule carbon footprints. Uh, but People think, well, X times number of people times X pollution equals pollution. Therefore, why don't they just stop having babies? And therefore, I don't have to influence my quality of life or change anything. They should, those poor people over there should do something. Um, and that's super racist. I shouldn't have to say that. But just so we're all on the same page. Sabina. Just a little fun fact to that. Um, I read somewhere that a six-month-old North American baby has more greenhouse gas emissions in their six months of life than one farmer in Africa their whole life. I don't know that, but I'm going to take it as I, I find that eminently believable. <laughs> Jeff's also nodding. All the packaging, all of the diapers, like all, just the packaging that goes into baby food. Just think oh, about absolutely. That. I'm coming, circling back to my, my recycling policy already. Um, so the reason I, I want to talk about this was those that one of the, the one of the things that we see through data, as, as Sabina was teasing me during the show, I'm, I'm very data-oriented. Um, and one of the things that we've noticed is that there's a number of corollary factors with uh, people who live in, quote-unquote, sort of the, the, you know, the, the primary world or the uh, first world is not how you're supposed to refer to it anymore, but the rich countries, basically, or the whole bunch of rich uh, Western countries. And um, one of them has to do with um, just basically the idea that when you take, uh, generally speaking, these countries have similar things in common. They're uh, generally better educated, although the Americans are bringing that average down right now. Uh, they generally have access to better social services. Women are generally respected and empowered more, generally are given more uh, influence over their own bodies and to make their own life decisions, relatively speaking, of course. Let's not get carried away. Um, but there's a correlation between all of those things, that those have a, uh, an influence on birth rates. 
if women are allowed to make their own choices, they generally tend to have uh, less children. Uh, they have them later in their life. They tend to uh, get more education before they have children. Uh, and it generally uh, results in a society, if we you know, didn't have immigration, we, have, it, we end up with a society that's generally better educated, generally has higher quality of life standards, generally has access to better services, and generally has a, uh, a population replacement rate of less than one, meaning that without immigration, the population would is decreasing. Uh, now, one of the things that I think is really important to do that, and one of the things that both Japan does and Canada does and a number of other countries, is that we, we have replacement uh, rates. I, I could be wrong as of today, but the last time I saw, and I'm, I'm certain this is still true, um, is that we have less than you know 1% one, 1 or whatever, uh, or one replacement rate, which meaning that we need immigration to keep our population steady. Uh, I think this is an excellent idea. Um, we're uh, in a very privileged position here in Canada. Um, we want i think we should uh, one of the best ways that we can actually influence the world is by opening uh, our borders to as much immigration as possible allow this wonderful country that we have to be enjoyed by as many people as possible and by doing so and by including people in the canadian fabric we're also saying that and this is something i really don't get about the the sort of more american although we have to be aware there's a lot of this in canada too um sort of xenophobic zeal right now in the united states was if you think you have the best system why wouldn't you want to export it and is it not the best way to export it to let people come and enjoy it say wow this really is a great system look at all this freedom they have and it really is great and it turns out that you know gay people don't suck your blood at night and <laughs> and wow and it turns out all these things this is just such a great society i'm gonna go tell my friends about it and maybe you know maybe i'll fight for some of these changes in my country so i think if we have the right idea we should really be opening our borders i think that we already need immigration to keep our population steady and I think that honestly, yeah, as a total number, even though the argument about using overpopulation as an argument about how to deal with environmental problems is inherently racist, ostensibly overpopulation is still a problem. Uh, it's just the the so the imp the implied solution to that problem is the racist part, not the problem itself. So I think we should be encouraging um, these policies and include, uh, encouraging people who choose to spend their time. Uh, we encourage them. Uh, to people who encourage them to spend their time to uh, improve society and, and become educated and participate in our society and just generally make our society better instead of having kids. Uh, I think we should encourage that. And that's how I come down to the fact that I think we one of the things that we can do way of ways of doing that is to uh, be okay with sex robots. So the sex robots part is really just the hook there. I think it's fun because I think it's also something that we just need to like remove the taboo around. I think sex is okay. I think in fact it's pretty darn okay. Uh, and I think we should be having a, a free and open society about that. And I think that that very soon should encourage ways about non-traditional relationships, including sex robots. But the larger story here is about, uh, I think, one of exporting our values. I think it's one of um, if we think our model is great, why don't we you know, want to share it with as many people as possible? Uh, and that this does have a long term environmental effect. That is my setup. Take it away. Jeff, any comments at all? Um, I'm just still digesting. <laughs> Sabina, take it. Sabina's already to go. Can I just say something? Is like the whole like is our model great? Let's export it. Is that like kind of like colonialist? <laughs> no, no. As in like let people come and experience it. Okay. And if we're so great, then they'll then they'll want to copy it elsewhere, and we'll encourage people to follow our lead. Really, it's trying. It's leading by example, not leading by military. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. So what do you say to anybody that, for example, says we need to be like more like human and, you know, like get away from all of this technology and try to be like unplugged, but now like introducing like human robot relationships in order to like, what about just condoms? And well, I would, <laughs> I would, I would tell them that the 1920s wants their morals back. 
Uh, I think that cat's out of the bag, and I and I think that's the regardless of the, you know the moral superiority of it. I think is irrelevant because I think that cat's out of the bag already, and this is the future, and this is not how young people think, and this is just not the world we live in. Hmm. What is it, what does the youngest member of our panel think about that? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's an important thing to discuss because obviously overpopulation has a lot of negative impacts, but. Um, I think already our culture is moving towards something like this, you know, because like the whole idea of sex is entirely different than what it used to be. And I guess like the introduction of robots would really just be like an evolution of this viewpoint that we already have. So it would be more of like an implementation than anything really changing. I don't know. I, I think it is probably going to happen eventually. It's not like something that you know, it's, I don't think it's a radical change. It's just sort of like a continuation of a process that we've been on for a long time. Yeah, anyone who's tried internet dating uh, in the last few years has noticed that like half of the single people in the world are apparently polyamorous. I mean, right? So like this is just this is just the reality of where you know relationships are, and not necessarily for everybody, but the the proportion of people who wish to engage in quote unquote untraditional relationships, whether that be an untraditional human to human to human to human relationships, or human to vibrator relationships, or human to robot relationships. Um, I think it shouldn't be taboo, and and I think we should we make as much space. Uh, Samina, before we talking here, this is the comparison I made was to like gay marriage, right? People go, well, I don't want gay marriage because it undermines my straight marriage. That's the worst argument ever. Uh, if you don't want to have sex with a robot, then don't. I'm just asking you to not like try and ban me doing it, and not necessarily me specifically, but like that's the argument, right? I don't know. I think I I just think I don't know. I I sometimes I think about how many of the world's problems are caused by people's like weirdness around and awkwardness around sex, and I think sex is just perfectly fine. Don't you think, Jeff? I do. Sex is perfectly fine. But we don't need to be encouraging. We don't necessarily need to be encouraging unnecessary childbirth. In the same way, people that want to have children should have children. But I think we need to. I think we really need to do away with this social. I I have never wanted to have children, and uh, I still don't. Uh, and my wife has in the same boat and we have friends. We've actually made a bit of a pact with some of our friends that aren't having kids that we're going to be there for each other when we get to a point where we start to need a little bit of help because we're not going to have our own children there. I've got a couple nephews and, uh, or a nephew and a couple nieces and hopefully they might be around, but, uh, I've never wanted children. So it's never really... I've always felt like if there's so much I want to do in my life that doesn't involve kids, and I love kids, and I'm great with them, but they can always go back with their parent, right? I'd, I'd ultimately have the responsibility to look after them. Um, but yeah, I've never – I guess I don't relate to that mindset of having kids and settling down with a family and – it's never been something that's interested me. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way about kids that I am about pets, which is that I enjoy other people's. Uh, well, are, I've got four cats. So that's a whole other story. <laughs> what are the, those what, are my kids? That's it right there. Let me let me pull the uh, the women in our in our panel here. Uh, thoughts about having children, both for yourself and societally. Uh, it's definitely like I enjoy looking after other people's kids. That's yeah. my viewpoint. <laughs> I don't really like kids, to be honest, <laughs> like in general, but like, uh, I don't know. I can't really say until until anything, but I don't like for me, the whole thing with the with the sex robots, like, I don't know why I'm the conservative one here. I'm never the conservative one. Sabia, you often <laughs> shock me with your viewpoints for a variety of reasons. Car- <laughs> carry on. OK, so like, what about the the like, like. 
I feel like there would be a mental shift in society. Like if it's just like so normal to like have sex with robots, like just like with porn, you know, like I feel like porn is like pretty damaging to a lot of people, like especially if you're like introduced to it at a very young age. So I feel like with sex robots, like something would like. I, I, would, I would argue that porn is it, obviously there is there's there's. Potential damage with it existing, but I also think that it's a necessary thing to have to mitigate what could yeah. potentially come out in other ways. Do you know what I mean? That might mm-hmm. be less desirable uh, behavior if the outlet wasn't there. Uh, which points to the sex robots as it might be uh, something that exists that could alleviate urges and desires of, of of people that might come out in other more distorted uh, ways. You know what I mean? Like, as you mentioned, that you think a lot of the, the problems, I'm paraphrasing mm. you, um, that come with our sort of skewed sense of sexuality or, or towards sex or, or in, in it, it ends up coming out in other ugly ways uh, behaviorally and, you know, the suppression and the not having that that outlet i guess you know well there was a really fascinating article that uh, another csi member uh uh, anthony upward who's uh, involved with a project called sustainable uh the sustainable lean business canvas uh shared which i found absolutely fascinating i was talking about uh 4chan the the message board 4chan Mm -hmm. and how it sort of started as a as a sort of like a very secretive secretive just because they wanted it to be like a cool club only they knew about not secretive because it was some nefarious organization it's just a bunch of nerds uh, of which I include myself in that group when I say that, by the way. So that's with love. Uh, but it became this sort of uh, – and the article is discussing the transition of a bunch of gamer nerds who essentially uh, uh, you know, started – turned into what we – part of what we think of as, as anonymous, although there's obviously a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, through like a Scientology thing, they're like, oh, look at these political activists. No, they were literally just seeing like could we – can we troll them? Like it was, it was just a practical joke for them. They had no political interest or, or religious convictions about it one way or the other. They were just like, hey, can we do this? There's a lot of us. I wonder if we could prank Scientology. And but what it's turned into uh, is now is that unfortunately, and what the article is talking about is that this has become a refuge of a lot of uh, the sort of uh, you know, Molotov cocktail vote, uh, technically liberal if you ask them about certain social issues, but ultimately voted for Trump group, which is this people and this it's a very long article, it's a very interesting article. I'll try if I can find it, I'll post it. It's a very interesting read. Um, but essentially how there's, there's an entire generation of, of males, and this is very much the, males, the male gamer, uh, socially isolated crowd who is part of this whole Gamergate thing of like uh, going after women and there's a conspiracy of like changing games to women and blah, blah, blah. And this whole just really nasty uh, thing there was essentially was this sort of generation of people that are like have sort of tried to own being losers is how the article phrased it. And so it's like the reason they voted for Trump is because they know he's a loser and it's kind of just sticking it to everybody else. And it's sort of like, yeah, you know, we're not the best, but we're sort of owning being not the best. And that's our strength is that we we're okay with that. And I feel like, you know, that's a whole side topic and we, we can't really get into it, but I feel like there is a really large group of people there who were, you know, yes, maybe it would be better if they learn to develop better social relationships, but the reality is that they haven't. And by providing another outlet, say, in the form of sex robots, and maybe that could carry conversation and maybe teach them social skills, 
uh, by, you know, sex robots that actually have a complicated language program, perhaps like for people that have these social skills, this seems very cold and, and dark or whatever. But for people that don't, I mean, this could, you know, we could have turned and you know, could have saved an entire you know group of folks who are out there like politically throwing Molotov cocktails and politically and politically are using their speech to to attack uh, women and minorities. Uh, into at least maybe functional, you know, human beings who are contributing to society by just letting them have some sex robots that are maybe teaching them how to develop human relationships with an automated program that's not going to be offended when they say something horrified to them. And maybe not reject them. Maybe and not the, reject the fear, them. The fear of rejection is kind of removed from the scenario that might open them up to explore that a bit more. Yeah, like I would actually be interested in not in the sex industry doing this, but 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 these this sort of thing being developed through like a counseling program. Like maybe you go and visit this and it's maybe you're like prescribed a counseling robot that can you can have sex with by a therapist and that the tape is reviewed by a professional like we can do we can do this in a very serious way um but i think it's a serious topic because there's a lot of really just socially maladjusted people out there who are politically throwing firebombs whether it's trump voters or just you know all sorts of people who i think you know sure it would be great if they developed these skills on their own but they haven't and now they're a liability for society and i think we should be we're, we're in a period of extreme problems and we need to be open to extreme solutions a and B, I think if you ask, you know, the younger generation, I think they're a lot more comfortable with it than 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 you should be. And, and that's their decision for them. And I think we should get a, get our morals out of their way if that's how they want to live their lives. I say what business of it is ours, you know, and as a queer person, I, that that particular point of, you know, as long as I'm not hurting you, what the hell do you care about what I do? Um, that's a very strong point of contention for me. Mm hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. <laughs> Even like the, the, my only thing is that not that I agree. Like I, I don't care at all. Like if sex robots just like roam the streets, but <laughs> nobody's talking about an army of sex robots. <laughs> I feel like we are. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, but I, I just mean that. Like, yeah. But when you talk about the fact that, yeah, that's true. Like, I can only speak from my point of view, and I think like I'm somewhat like socially like comfortable like there's not a lot of people like maybe there's people that aren't you know and that's just privilege i guess for my part but it's just like it's true then everybody should just have whatever they feel like they need in order to get through the day <laughs> yeah I, I think it's a very understandable but very and very common um but very very damaging just sort of instinctual reaction we have which is that this doesn't suit me therefore no one should have it or this doesn't suit me therefore no one should think this way i think any um, anything that is going to improve someone's life and and also their interactions socially if that if having a sex robot or a, a relationship and whatever that form would be with a sex robot is going to help you um function more in a more healthy way socially in society i think anything that does that 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 does that is is okay with me you know i think we um, could also talk about this as like having positive impacts not just on the like the individual that we're talking about having a relationship but also you know like sex trafficking you would definitely i, I believe you would see a decrease in that because if it's not necessary to force people mm -hmm. into relationships or into sex that they don't consent to i think you know if you have a robot you would definitely be harming fewer people Oh, we we should we should mm. say that these robots would be for you know permanent sale only. No renting of sex robots. I think that's right out. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Yeah, I that don't, was, I don't know if I would. Uh, I want to have a used sex robot. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I'd feel. Jeff picked up immediately on where I was going with that. Yeah. <laughs> Discounted. 
<laughs> second sex, hand. Secondhand re- <laughs> sex robots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. No, just like my more my thing. My thing today was just kind of is that I think there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations we don't have because uh, I think they're awkward. And and I think that that's a big societal problem. And I chose Sex Robots today because it was I actually went last year to a conference, uh, an anime conference. One of the things they were talking about was sex robots. Uh, and it was just a technology workshop. And one of the speakers was talking about it. And uh, and they made some convincing arguments. I, I will admit that I was I was more against it than I was until I saw this workshop, Spina. So I, I, I used to be more conservative on this issue. I've, I've since uh, stepped quite a bit ways back. And I should also say that and, and I don't say this out of an embarrassment uh, thing, because if it was so, I'm. I'm I'm not afraid of saying I would be. Uh, this isn't even something I necessarily a product I would necessarily be interested in using. Uh, I just think there's a lot of people who would benefit from it, and because it's one of those things we don't like to talk about, we don't do right. So, so the argument the argument that people would say would be like, oh well, this will retard people's ability to develop relationships. So it's like, well, I'm pretty sure people's like teenagers' cell phones have already done that. Um, there, I don't think there's much farther down social relationships could go. This could only improve it, <laughs> uh, I think. Uh, and B would be it's like the kind of idea about being against methadone because well, methadone is bad for you. Well, yeah, it's bad for you, but it's a lot better than being addicted to heroin. Um, and I, that's sort of how I see this problem. I see, I see the sex robots as methadone, um, and maybe not for everyone, uh, but people who don't need it shouldn't use them and should engage in real human relationships, but some people need it. And I think we should be making it available to them. Uh, I th- that's all I have to say for on this. I feel like you guys are any last words on that. And we're going to have like culturally specific robot or we're going to have, uh, <laughs> like a catalog uh, I feel like this would be like kind of like when you're buying a car, which is there'd be like a base model, but then you could get specific upgrades and customize the paint color and right uh, solar powered. Absolutely. I mean, uh, or be sustainable. They have to be. Well, they would have to be entirely biodegradable. <laughs> <sexual ones. laughs> Sabina, go for it. Oh, my God. There was <laughs> this just reminded me. There was a story. I was reading about this story. Um, a sex toy like was uh, – oh, my God. Okay, let me, let me rephrase my – let me speak clearly. So there was this um, community that was kind of living on an island, and a sex toy washed up in this community, and no one knew what it was, and they treated it like a god for like – I don't know if it's a book or if it's a true story, but I do remember that hmm. this is – and I think that that's – Hilarious. <laughs> there is a, that specific story may not be true, but uh, there, the idea of the cargo cult is yeah. a thing, which is referring to a uh, an uncontacted tribe that uh, a plane was shot down. I believe it was during World War Two, uh, or maybe World War One. Uh, but it, it dispersed a number of like aid supplies, and so they never saw the the plane that happened during the night. They never saw the explosion. They never found the debris. They didn't know anything about modern technology. But all these crates full of food and supplies came, and so they began worshiping the sky and the, the explosions as sort of like the the you know outpourings of this god and whatnot and and awaiting the next arrival and so later when they were contacted they had developed this entire uh, ideology around these gods that uh, that had shown them mercy by sending uh, aid and supplies very interesting um, hmm. so maybe that specific thing is true maybe not but the concept is is valid I like the idea of like ordering like designing your <laughs> <laughs> designing your own Sex robot. The, the, well, here, that's an interesting prospect there. All right, my, like, my final thought for the day is, is following that train of thought. How many women, I'm speaking to our women, female audience members now, how many women have been absolutely driven crazy by their boyfriends being like, hey, have you ever thought about inviting another girl to like join us or whatever? Well, here maybe this is a happy medium because you know uh, apparently a large section of men want this and most women understandably are not enthused. Uh, maybe this is a middle ground. Mm-hmm. Just putting it out there. Mm-hmm. 
All right. <laughs> let's, let's finish it there. I think thank you for sitting our, through our uh, fun, but I, I hope you took that the, there was some serious, I think, val- valuable content here in with a in slightly silly and, and perhaps uh, blushing uh, packaging, if you will. Uh, Jeff, we'll come back and discuss the design and ordering process of these robots in a future yeah, show. Okay. All right. Take care. Thanks. I'll do some sketches. Yeah. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for listening. Have a good, good week.